Our main text today comes from 1 Corinthians 6, as you've heard beautifully read. Uh, Corinth was a very prominent and wealthy city of the ancient world. It was located on the isthmus that separated the northern and southern portions of Greece and was at the heart of trade in the ancient world. They particularly traded in uh, bronzeware and many kinds of special uh, stone and so forth. It's also the crossroads of all the latest ideas. And so Corinth was uh, really awash with the latest ideas of Gnostic teaching, which devalued the place of the body. And so it becomes a very, very important text for us as we talk again uh, this whole year about a theology of the body and applying it in our lives. The Gnostics at that time had a running joke that was a pun in the original language, which we translated as the body is a tomb. It's a play on the words soma, body, and sema, tomb. It really reflects the uh, Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher who once declared, I am a poor soul shackled to a corpse. And Corinth also, precisely because of Gnostic thinking, was also awash with sexual immorality, which is the particular focal point of Paul's admonition in our text. Uh, the many Athenian plays at the time made reference to Corinth in reference to sexual immorality. Well, the Apostle Paul uh, tackled all of this unbiblical and Gnostic teachings head on, as does the Apostle John particularly, and they are in really a battle for the, really the heart of the gospel here. And this is a really a huge battle for a proper way of understanding the body. Uh, last semester, I spent seven sermons laying out the seven building blocks for theology of the body. And this semester, we're applying it to a range of issues. This particular day, we're focused on the role that the, uh, the that media plays, particularly the visual media and particularly advertisement and in the entertainment industry, the role it plays in portraying and how they portray the human body and how that affects in some ways erodes a really Christian, robust understanding of Christian embodiment and how we view the body. In our text today, uh, Paul begins by quoting lines from their letter, which the church had sent to him, to which this letter, of course, responds. So they're the ones that say, all things are lawful for me, in verse 12. It's a misunderstanding of the doctrine of grace. It also implication reminds us that just because something is lawful in the culture, doesn't mean that it necessarily has any shape or form on Christian ethics. But more to our point for today is the second part of their letter, which he quotes, food for the stomach and stomach for food, in 1 Corinthians 6.13, almost surely a, a byword or phrase that they used to represent a larger Gnostic argument that just as the the body, the food, all these things we've done away with, in the same way our bodily actions, the life of our body is morally neutral because the only thing that matters is the spiritual part inside of us. I think today's uh, comparable phrase would be the phrase, follow your heart. Uh, this will be applied by the Corinthians to say the body for sex, sex for the body. It doesn't matter, God will destroy them both. This is the particular point that Paul is addressing. Now, one of the themes that we have uh, underlined all year is that your body is not merely a biological category, it's never less than that, but it's also a theological category. 
And so your body is meant to be an icon or a window into all these amazing redemptive truths. So your body is an icon of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It points to his bodily incarnation. If you are a single person, you are an icon of the new creation. If you are married, you are an icon as a husband and wife of Christ in the church. If you have children, you're an icon of the Holy Trinity. All of these great mysteries are explored. Even all the means of grace happen in and through the body. And so the body is something that's very important in both Jewish and Christian teachings as foundationally good and positive. So the culture says, don't trust your body, follow your heart. The Bible says your heart is deceitful, but your body can be trustworthy. This is a place where our culture and the church, uh, biblical teaching, come directly in contact one with another. So we come to uh, verse 13, and Paul says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, the word there is porneia, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He is saying that when we talk to one another and speak to one another and interact with each other, we put ourselves as whole persons. We are those that are united with Christ. So how can we be united to a prostitute? This is a false union. It's, a, it's, a, it's immorality. It's, it goes against Christian ethics. So Paul is really bringing out the whole notion of how we, our bodies, are like living temples of the Holy Spirit walking in the world. Now in Corinthians, in this sticker letter, Paul plays back and forth between the body, meaning the body of Christ, that we corporately uh, embody the temple of God. We are corporately uh, God's outpost of the kingdom in the world. I love uh, Sandy Richter's beautiful description of the church. The church is the outpost of the new creation in a fallen world. It's a great definition. So we are corporately to represent the temple of God, but also our bodies are temples of the Lord as well. And this text brings that out. We are also, we are individually, we are a temple of God, which is filled with his spirit, united with Christ. And later on, Paul will end this letter by pointing out that if Christ is not bodily raised, and we ourselves will not be raised, right? This whole week of Holy Week, we are preparing ourselves, coming up next week, for walking through the events of Holy Week, which culminate in the, re the bodily resurrection of Christ, without which we have no hope, the, the first fruits, the aparche of our own resurrection. So in the New Testament vision, when we meet another person, we meet them and we present ourselves as whole persons, united body and spirit. This is the Christian vision. And the Christian vision never compromises on that point. We are always subjects because we're always bearers of the image of God. And so we present each other as subjects, those that are fellow bearers of the image of God. Now the visual media, especially the entertainment and advertising industry, though it goes throughout our media, tends to separate the body from the whole person, that is to say their body and spirit. This is seen in provocative billboards, Super Bowl commercials, pornographic websites, uh, glamour magazines, TV, films. It, it, the, the estimates of how many hundreds of images we see daily are, are mixed, but it's a lot. Endless examples of bodies being turned into objects. There's a lot of money to be made in this. 
Uh, it is a bit staggering to remember, and this is just one of many examples, but that Carl Jr.'s hamburgers, a hamburger, just a hamburger, paid $4.5 million for a 30-second Super Bowl commercial using Kate Upton's body to sell hamburgers and french fries. There is a huge power to this in our world. Our culture is inundated with these images, and advertisers use them to incite lust and to make connections. There have been particular studies done on particularly the automotive, auto, automotive industry of selling cars and food, and how both are identified with sexual images, and both are identified with replacements for human relationships. It's also done with you know, Gillette razors. I mean, it's not just cars. It's a lot of things are done this way in advertising. All of this, we should remind it as Christians, even though people, even ourselves, refer to some of these as dirty images, that again is not the Christian view. The body is never, ever regarded in the church, in the teaching of Christ, as dirty. What is dirty is the separation of the body from the inner life. That's what's dirty. Or it's dirty is what, or evil, the, the lust it incites, or the shame that it incites. That's what's evil. The body is always beautiful and whole. To view a pornographic website, for example, is to engage in a form of idolatry because you destroy the inner self and put a wedge between love of Christ and love of, of, of yourself. This is the great, the great isolation, the incurvatus in se. We talked about the turning one's heart inward to oneself. This goes through all of this. And just so we're really clear, because as a community, we struggle a lot with all of this. And I want you to know uh, that pornographic viewing is not morally neutral. It is not morally neutral. Not only will it destroy your life, can destroy your marriages, it also will destroy your relationship with Christ, and it, it actually is a permission slip for the whole community to invite spiritual bondage in our community as a whole. So we're collectively heard by even one person. And so to, it's together, it's a very important, as we as a community covenant, as that psalm so beautifully portrayed, that covenant our eyes and our ears uh, to be faithful to Christ alone. The problem with all of this pornography and other kinds of visual images in the entertainment industry is not that it reveals too much, it's that it reveals too little. That's the problem. It doesn't present people in their wholeness, and therefore it's a form of disincarnation. That is the problem. It is a non-sacramental view of the body, and Christian teaching opposes that. Now, there are different ways all this plays out amongst men and women, and research now shows that it is not exclusive whatsoever to men and women, that, but it is true that primarily it produces, these images produce lust in men, and primarily it produces shame and self-recrimination in women, though these two categories are not at all exclusive, and we have problems with women addicted to pornography, we have men that feel a sense of shaming. This goes across both genders, but primarily this happens. Particularly, uh, many surveys done, even with very young children, young girls, between 6 and 10, or half of them 
when asked what they would change about themselves, these are six to ten, are already saying they wish they were thinner. There are so many studies on this. So many idealized images of women that are portrayed regularly on, uh, in the media in various ways. So a little young girl, for example, is in line at a grocery store. This is a very common occurrence. So she's with her mom or dad. They're going through the line to buy groceries. She looks up and sees the cover of a Cosmopolitan or Glamour magazine. And the not-so-subtle message is communicated, you should look like that. The front cover of these magazines often portray young women with idealized body forms. And I wrote down some of the headlines or the, you know, the main titles on these to make the point. I can't show these uh, front covers of these magazines because it wouldn't be appropriate for Estes Chapel. But you can imagine what goes behind these, these uh, headlines. Perfect skin, perfect skin, gorgeous hair. Feed your cravings, still lose weight. Sexiest body ever. Get your beach body ready. These messages encounter us or encourage us to see our worth and our value in our physical appearance separate from all else. So a young person, a young girl is going through adolescence. She looks in the mirror and she says to herself, if I look more like that, I might be desirable. Or tragically, I'm too fat. Or my face is not shaped right. And you focus on your nose or your chin or your hair texture or whatever. But I wanted to say to all of you, in Jesus' name, everyone in hearing my voice, whether it be here or McKenna or on the, uh, online, you are all <clears throat> beautiful. Jesus declares you beautiful just the way you are. He loves every inch of you. He loves every part of you, and he created you to be exactly as you are. Thanks be to God. We will not accept this disincarnation, which separates the inner person from its original unity and functions as an anti-sacrament. And on the positive side, Christians, and I think your generation is so good at this, because you understand much more so than other generations the power of these images and of digital media and all of that. And the church has always taken the lead in portraying the body properly. We don't run from portraying the body. There are many examples of this that are done beautifully. I take particularly the use of icons. Now, I think everybody should have at least one icon in their home. That makes me a radical, I'm sure, but I wanted to stand behind the fact that two of the seven ecumenical councils affirm the use of icons. It's okay. An icon is not an idolatrous image. An icon is a window into an eternal reality. And the icons are actually designed to portray the inner life. I wanted to show you one, if it's available. I asked one to be shown as the picture of Christ's Pentecrater. This is a, one of the uh, oldest icons in the world. It means Christ the Almighty Ruler. It's located in St. Catherine's Monastery in Egypt in the southern Sinai. Has anybody been there to see this? I'm just curious. Okay, no hands up. Well, you must make a trip to Egypt uh, because this icon was one of many to try to reveal both, and the, the psalm reflected this, both Christ as judge of the world and Christ as the compassionate redeemer of the world. 
If you look at the picture, it's divided in half, and if you actually cover and look just through one side of your eyes and see the right side of the icon, you see that Christ is faces the judge of the world, but the left side of his face changes complexion, and he's actually the compassionate Christ calling the world to himself. The whole point is the icon is meant to reveal an inner quality of God who beautifully combines both justice and mercy. It's a very powerful image. Now, the church has been great at this, and this can be done also in, in modern-day films and movies and all kinds of things. This is not something just like, I want you to all become icon drawers. There are many, many ways it can be done, and you'll know better than I how that can be done, but this is the goal. Now, this challenge is not simply about dealing, I wish it was only about dealing with things like lust in men or shame in women or vice versa. That's a huge challenge. That itself caused a lot of reflection. But for many others, it's a matter of life and death. I think particularly about the abortion industry. Abortion industry, which we've not discussed in this series, but is the destruction of a body inside a mother's womb. Now, we have rightfully lamented the 500,000 lives plus lives that have been destroyed or lost during COVID-19. But every year in just America, one million lives lost every year to abortion. What's particularly challenging on this point is in the 70s, when Roe v. Wade occurred, the argument was made that the reason abortion was permitted was because uh, the, the fetus was not yet alive. It wasn't viable. All of that was, was, was done, argued, in terms of the nature. When does life begin? That was really the dominant conversation. Well, science has changed a lot since then. Now it's been utterly proven that life begins at conception. So what's happened today is the emergence of new personhood theory. And this is the point you have to remember. They're now saying that a baby, though they're biologically alive, they don't yet achieve personhood till later on, even after birth. And of course, this is a socially determined line, and that should create great concern for the people of God. Another more um, normal thing for us, I think, is the challenge of the digital world, the digital virtualism, what's been called the rise of the digital self. Now, all of us uh, are aware of the power of avatars and of online uh, persons that are now out there the, the whole idea of a, dirt, a digital virtual self that can be manipulated, changed, deleted because it has no inherent moral dignity raised a lot of questions about the role of digitized forms, digitized bodies, and how they are shaping how we understand the human body. Uh, John Jefferson Davis, for example, argues that we actually have in your generation the emergence of what he calls for the first time a new ontology so we've had the ontology of scientific materialism. We all get that. The body is just uh, material stuff. We get that. The, the worldview that we occupy, what he calls the, the, the body of the ecclesial trinitarian self, a body shaped by Christian teaching. But he argues there's actually a third self, a digital self, a virtual self that's changing how we understand uh, reality. Now, there are many, many, you know, movies and books like Oasis, The Truman Show, all of these things, uh, you know, Ready Player One, which play on the idea of dirt, digital and virtual. We also know the power of 
the digital world with a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down digitally can create all kinds of shame in our culture. And so many reports who young people have shown the damaging effect this in their social relationships. All of this means that the church must think well about these matters. These are things, these are theological frontiers which we have not thought about much, as we should. And this is what your generation is going to have to do some great theological work on. I believe it's something that God uh, will give you grace to do that. We walk into church today, it's not unusual to have announcements given by people uh, on screens, the band being portrayed larger than life on screens. These are normal things in churches. Pastors preaching sermons across digital. Oh yeah, I'm doing it today uh, to uh, the other chapel. Very, very normal. Nothing really necessarily wrong with it. But the point is, we have to think about it. We have to ask ourselves, what does it mean for us to talk about embodied presence? COVID-19 has challenged and accelerated many of these trends. We have to think about it very, very well. It's called the social shape of reality. But there's no question that the rise of digital images is shaping how we view the body and the very nature of human embodiment. So I want to come back to our Apostles' Creed today. And remember what actually is being stated in the Apostles' Creed. Because the Creed is not simply stating doctrines, but it's about, beneath it all, it says a lot about the nature of embodiment. Think about it. He was born of the Virgin Mary. That sanctifies the womb right there. The womb is a sacred place because Jesus entered one. He suffered under Pontius Pilate Why in the world would you put an unbeliever in the Apostles' Creed? Because it roots it in history, real history, embodied history. He was crucified, dead and buried. All that happens in the body. I believe in the resurrection of the body, the Creed affirms. The whole thing is about the role of body and history, how they come together in Jesus Christ. Apostles' Creed goes on to celebrate the communion of the saints. Think about it. When we gather as a church... We also include those who are gathering with us, the church, victorious. But the saints in heaven, our connection with them is not virtual, it's mystical. That's different because we actually believe they really are saints gathered in heaven. They really are with us. We worship with them. We are connected. They are not in the, you know, the great cloud of witnesses is not the iCloud. It's an actual presence of God. We have to reclaim this. When the scriptures say, don't give up meeting together, you know, it has a lot about the power of embodied presence one with another. Uh, COVID-19, we, of course, we make all kinds of allowances for this because for all kinds of, you know, good and appropriate reasons, but we do have a, we want to fight for embodiment again. We want to fight to be back together again because that embodiment is part of who we are. That's not just an Asbury thing. It's a Christian thing. We believe in embodiment. And we want to fight the forces of disincarnation. I want to also say, if you're parents, or you will be parents someday, this is going to require intentional catechesis of your children to grow up seeing their bodies as beautiful before God and to resist a lot of powerful forces that would disincarnate our bodies and separate you and me from the wholeness of who we are. 
I want to stand before you not as just a body, but as a person, a full person before God and all that God has made me to be. Because all of this, all of our bodies, are meant to be, in the Christian vision, daily reminders of the greatest image of all, that God stepped into, yes, bodily stepped into our history in Jesus Christ. That's what this week is about. And he walked down this road of suffering for us bodily. The whole image of God comes back into the, New into the Bible in the New Testament with the person of Christ. This is why John, who also fought with Gnosticism, says, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. In fact, Paul, John gets so excited about this that he actually says, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, you're an antichrist. That's the closest thing to a, a Christian allowed insult. That's how strongly he felt about it. And that's why Paul ends this text by saying in verse 20, and it concludes the whole text, don't forget you were bought with a price and therefore glorify God with your body. Thanks be to God. Amen.